It is a privilege to be here. I love this thing. It doesn't. I still want it. Man, I like it. Um, it is a privilege to be here with you this evening. Uh, open your Bibles up if you'd be willing to Ephesians. But I want to begin just really quickly out of uh, Luke. And this is something the Lord has been just really dealing with me on. Um, and I'm going to be... Uh, I'm going to be probably releasing a little video on this here pretty soon. But in Luke chapter 4, Jesus comes out of a season of temptation victoriously and just immediately just launches into ministry. And, 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 and in the midst of going from here to there to here to there, he comes back to his hometown and he picks up the scriptures and he announces uh, what he calls to a, a proclamation of the year of the Lord's favor. Now, there's a few different Greek words for year. This is, and we're going to look out of Ephesians again. We're going to start in chapter six tonight. But if you want to look along with me, this is uh, Luke chapter four, verses uh, 18 and 19. There's a few different Greek words for year in the New Testament. Um, one we're probably most familiar with is the one used in Luke 2:41, where every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. And that word year means year. It's what we think of as year, where we go, you know, every year we celebrate Thanksgiving. Every year we, we, we do whatever. That's, that's that word year. But the word in verse 19 is not year. This word means age or season. And it's, it's, it's literally described in your, in your Greek lexicons as a, un, an, a kind of an undefined long period of time. And it's just, Jesus says, listen, he stands up at his church, so to speak, and says, we have entered into a new season where God is going to do these kinds of things. And it's what? It's, it's right out of Isaiah. And of course, Malachi and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, several of them prophesy about this. But Jesus chooses to quote, I believe this is right out of Isaiah 61. Yeah. But he says in verse 18, these three things are going, to, are going to mark the season in which we're living. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Okay? Now that's not just going to be Jesus, that's going to be us. Because he's anointed me. He's anointed, Jesus is the head of the church, so this is our anointing. Jesus demonstrated what he was going to continue to do through the church. These three things. To preach the good news to the poor. That means redemption, salvation, reconciliation, back to God. That we're no longer just slaves, we're no longer just sinners. I, hear, I see that on, on Instagram and, and Facebook and social media from time to time, that I'm just, a, you know, I'm just a worthless sinner, but Jesus loves me. No, you're not. Well, I mean, you may be. But that's, that's not what he's come to that's what, not what he's come to complete in you. And if you don't receive what he's come to give you, you're literally robbing from him of what he paid the price for. He says, we can be, we can be redeemed. We're going to talk this week about the idea of, of, um, of justified. To be justified, just really quickly, to be justified literally means to stand before God with no stain of sin in our life. In the old covenant, you know, you could be forgiven of a variety of kinds of, of, of things, okay? 
but there was still the stain of sin there. So when God looked at you, you were forgiven, but that's what you were. You were forgiven. What Jesus accomplished is that when the Father looks at you, you're not someone who's sinned that's been forgiven. You're someone who's literally never sinned. That's ridiculous. That when the Father looks at you, it's like you've never sinned before. I know, I'm going to have to explain it later, but that's the depth, that's the depth of this season we're living in, in which Jesus provides to us in his body. So he's literally to preach the good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom from the prisoners. And that literally has the idea of, of whether you want to call it deliverance, whether you want to call it freedom from bondage, you don't have to live under the thumb of the enemy anymore. Okay, so we're not just talking about reconciliation to God and we're saved and get to go to heaven, but we live as conquerors. In fact, we live as more than conquerors. Second thing. And then the third thing he explains in two different ways, recovery for sight from the blind and released and the release of the oppressed. And that is oppression that manifests in us physically. So there are three things, and you can, you can go and study this on your own, and, and scholars are going to tell us the same thing that they're all saying, is that Jesus came to provide three things in this season because of his ministry. There is redemption, it's reconciliation, sons and daughters of God. We're going to be free from demonic oppression, and we're going to be able to be restored physically in our body. And he demonstrated, by the way, he not only demonstrated that, but the disciples soon-to-be apostles demonstrated that, and the early church demonstrated that, and we are seeing it in our midst. I expected a bigger reaction out of that. <laughs> but I guess what I'm saying is that when I, whenever I get up to preach, I just come expecting. And what the Lord's been speaking to me about is that, and I don't know if this is the right language, but I don't want to rob Jesus of everything he came and provided us. Like his kingdom becomes, he, he, he becomes glorified. His kingdom becomes known when what he provided is manifested in our midst. Like we demonstrate, it's not us. We fix our eyes on Jesus. It's his word. It's his works. It's what he has accomplished. We just live in that. And to not live in that is just there's some type of a, of a shunning that happens with him. I don't have all that figured out, but that's, Paul talks about that over and over. We're going to look at some of that this evening, but let's, let's start in Ephesians uh, this evening, chapter 6. Uh, I was here, I don't remember when it was, a year or two ago, probably a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago. I was here some time ago, and I was just, actually, your church was the very first church I'd ever presented this, this kind of reach search project that I was doing um, on Ephesians. And some of the terminology that, that Paul was using to this church. And just a really quick kind of introduction to, to the church at Ephesus. We know more about the church of Ephesus than we do really about any other church in the New Testament. I mean, we have a long, a really long history with the church um, there in Ephesus. We know how it started in Acts chapter 19. Apollos and Paul are ministering alongside of each other, 
And there's, they come to this point in time around verse ni- uh, chapter 19 where Apollos goes on into Corinth and Jesus, uh, Paul goes through the interior, um, whatever that is, but probably the interior of Asia Minor, and he comes into Ephesus. And there's this tremendous movement of God that happens there. And as you go through the next couple chapters, you learn that it takes him two years to kind of sort out all that God did in that place. I mean, it was extraordinary miracles. That's the language that's used. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. I mean, they are taking pieces of cloth that, would, that touched Paul, and they're taking it across town, running into the nursing home, putting it on people, and that person's healed. And so it's this kind of demonstration of, of, of what scholars call a Gentile Pentecost. Like what happened in Acts chapter 2 happens in Acts chapter 19. And, it's, and the church is born. And you get, to, you get to see not only just in the book of Acts over, the, over several chapters, Ephesus becoming this kind of place where Paul is launched out from. We know he was first launched out from Antioch, but later on, really Ephesus becomes his, his base of operation. Timothy ends up pastoring there who Paul kind of mentored. And when he's in prison and he writes first and second, those two letters to Timothy, those are written to Timothy while he's pastoring in Ephesus. He writes a letter back to the church in Ephesus. And so you really see, in fact, the the neatest part of of all of this in in Acts 19 is this guy named Demetrius. I think he's Russian. He, uh, Demetrius sounds Russian. He, uh, he, um, he gets up and he's, he's a part of this like uh, false God worship little side shop creates these shrines and stuff uh, for Artemis, I believe it is. And him and his little guild members, they just, they're, they're, I mean, they took a hit on the business because God has done so much, you know, stuff in their midst. He, uh, he goes and starts this riot and he goes to the town hall and they have this basic town hall meeting kind of a thing there. And his statement is that this fellow Paul has not only polluted all of Ephesus, but the entire province of Asia. The scope of that revival just didn't affect Huntsville, but the entire area of, how far do you want to go? Alabama, we'd love to have it in Tennessee. It was just this tremendous movement of God. And out of that movement of God, all the other churches, like 10 or 11 of them in Asia Minor, literally Ephesus was the ones that spawned them. And there had been a few Paul went before then, but literally they were fed. They were like these child churches of, of the ministry at Ephesus. So there's a few things, well, and, and just the last part of this, by the time you get to Revelation, you have 40 years-ish separated from the ministry in Ephesus, okay? And now, of course, Paul is dead, Timothy is dead, probably the whole other generation is dead, and you have John the Apostle who's centered in Ephesus, and he's writing this letter, and Jesus, in Revelation chapter 2, brags on the great-grandparents, the Acts 19 church, to the grandkids, Revelation chapter 2 church in Ephesus. He tells them in Revelation 2, I wish you were more like Acts 19. So what's so significant about this letter is not only just the ministry that took place there, but it wasn't what Paul is writing. This wasn't theory. We do. We talk a lot about, honestly, a lot of what, uh, I don't know, I don't want to be scolding with the church in the United States, but a lot of what we talk about and a lot of what, let me just use myself. It's easy to scold yourself. This year marks 27 years I'll be, I will have been in, in ministry, which is, you know, 
I'm 39, so it's, you know, I, yeah, so I started when I was 12, and, you know, it's just been a long, it's been a long road. But I, did I believe in healing? Did I believe in all the things that I'm currently seeing, inner healing, outward healing, transformation, revival? Did I believe in those kinds of things as I'm seeing them today for 27 years? Yes, but there were several of those years where it was theory. In other words, I believed it because I read it in the scripture, but have you ever seen it? Have you ever seen anybody raised from the dead? Oh, I believe it. Well, I do too. But it's, it, that, that's really the category of what we would call theory. I mean, I believe it. But have I ever seen it take place? Oh, I'm waiting. I'm waiting. God is pulling me out of theory and where we can see it demonstrated. I just believe we're entering into a season where we're going to see all the stuff that happened there. We're going to see it in our midst. What was so unique about Ephesus, none of that stuff was theory. Like when they came out of these services, they were shocked when stuff like that didn't happen. So when Paul is writing to this church and you, and, and you go through the letter of, uh, of Ephesians, there's, there's, it's not like the church in Corinth. He's not saying, listen, you need to grow up. You need to move on from, from milk to solid food. Dude, these guys are eating steak dinners. So what really attracted me to Ephesus is I want to live. I'm, dude, I'm in my prime. <laughs> 39. I am in my prime. And I want to experience an Ephesus-type moving of the Spirit in my generation. I mean, I really, really do. At all cost. At any cost. I want to experience that kind of movement of God. And so I've been going back and, and looking at Ephesus, and the first step in this, if we really want to see what was going on there in our day, there, I, I really believe there's this lens. We're going to look at several aspects of, of the letter of Ephesus this week, the letter of Ephesians. But it, I really believe it starts with this lens by which they've seen their world. And it's, it's, it's a little, it takes a little bit of adjustment you know, uh, for us Americans here in the Church of the United States. But there's a lens that I want to introduce you tonight, probably... Uh, honestly, you, you probably know already about most of this lens, but let's, let's look at it in kind of a condensed, just quick four-hour long service where we can just break down this lens and, and get, a, get a grasp on it. So Holy Spirit, we ask you to come and bring revelation of the words of Jesus and that we might see clearly not only who we are, but our mission. I love that map, Lord. I love that map on the wall. That's we, I hear some people call that activating. They're literally declaring what they're hearing from you. They are declaring the responsibility that you put on there. This church is not here by chance. It wasn't, the, those of us who are here and those who are watching online, we aren't, we aren't here for nothing. I'm not wasting and squandering my life in this generation. We were created with destiny in our bones. And so, Father, we just... We just ask that you would take the truth of your word and transform us this evening over the airways and for those of us in presence. And we'll give you the praise. In your name we pray. Amen. So I want to I look at this lens just beginning with you. And I, don't, I didn't send any scriptures because I'm irresponsible. But I don't know if you guys can keep up or do you, if you do that kind of thing uh, or not. But if not, you guys can use your Bibles. Um, Ephesians chapter 6, beginning at verse 12, uh, Paul has been writing for the entire uh, book, first five chapters, comes into chapter 6, and he introduces 
um, really kind of like a, a theme statement for the entire letter. And he says in verse 12, now get this, he says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Now let, let's, let's unpack that just a little bit. First off, the word their struggle means fight. Okay? And it's, the grammar gives you this, this idea of a, it's not, in this, it's not in the present tense, it's in the air. So it's, it's this idea that we are in this season. Again, it's one of those season kinds of terms. The grammar would point to that, that, that we are in a fight. And if you'd say, well, I'm not in a fight. Yeah, you are. <laughs> okay? Whether you are engaging or not, you're, you're in a fight. This is what he says. Okay? Our struggle, our wrestling match, our fight, and then he says, is not against flesh and blood. And I struggled with that at the beginning because in the United States especially, we default to the physical. Uh, and what we mean is, is uh, you know, in the arguments that I have with my kids, um, in, the, uh, in the pressures that I feel driving down the freeway, you know, at my job, with my relatives, okay, the tension I feel with my wife sometimes, we, we feel like, I, I tend to default to the physical, Okay? That if, if this would physically change, if this person would act different, or if we'd have this right person in office, or if we, would, if we would just do this physical thing, everything would be cleared up. That's just not his lens. So there's, there's two different things that we're going to be looking at today. We're going to be looking at the physical realm, and we're going to be looking at the spiritual realm. And what Paul says here in verse 12 is you and I don't fight here. Our battle is not physical. Our battle is spiritual. Now, I want to say quickly, it's not that we don't have difficulties in the physical, but the real battle is spiritual. And you, you can't fix the physical by the physical. There's some, this lens that they have is that when God transforms here, it, it like produces. It, you can use the word manifest here in the physical. So there is a spiritual realm and then there's a physical realm. And what he's saying is we fight here. The struggle is here, not here. So you look in the life of Jesus. He had a lot of physical, like Pharisees, that they were saying physical things, doing physical deal. But what Jesus' perspective is, is it was here. He, he constantly talked to them that their problem wasn't just, that. well, they need to read their Bible more. If they would just be more dedicated. If they would be more knowledgeable. Okay? Or if they just weren't so grumpy, you know, they could just have an, you know, some type of a pill from the doctor. You know? that, wasn't, that wasn't the problem. The problem in the Pharisees was this. They had all kinds of information. So the problem, although it was severe here, its origin was in the spiritual realm. So Paul says, listen, you don't wrestle against flesh and blood. It's not that we don't have physical problems but the overcoming of that physical circumstance is in the spiritual realm. That's where the real battle is. That's the lens by which he speaks. And then he describes what he means by not flesh and blood. He says, we struggle against rulers. That word can mean principalities. It's authorities. We're going to learn about those tonight. Against authorities, against powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's who we wrestle against. In fact, let me give you just this really quickly. If you were to go back to chapter 2 in Ephesians, again, he's, he's been talking about this all along, and he settles in chapter 6. But right when he gets to this huge identity section in the first chapter, he's reminding the Ephesians of who they are. He comes to chapter 2, and he says, listen to this. 
He says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit, am I a little hot? I am. What am I doing? Just stay right here. He says, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, transgressions and sins, in which you used to live, okay? So this was our old life before Christ, when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. That is a, that's, that's singular. There is a ruler. And then he says, the spirit who is, at now, uh, who is now at work in those who are disobedient. And so if... if, if we used to live there, but in the world, disobedience is produced by a spirit. We live in a spiritual war. And every time I talk about this, especially among my generation and older, okay? So the late 30s and older. I've heard people all the time, uh, several times, say, well, Jeremiah, you talk like you know, I've heard about it. We've got to be cautious as you act like there's a demon under every rock. Well, Paul thought there was. Seriously, Paul said, take captive every single thought that you have. Seriously, every thought that comes in your mind, be skeptical. Where does it come from? Now, is every thought that I have come from the enemy? No. Every evil thought come from the enemy? Well, no. But maybe... So I take captive every single thought. Is everything, every single thing that we, that we experience that's negative, is that from the enemy? Well, no. But it could be. Not every fear that I have is from the enemy, but it could be. Not everybody who is, who is riddled with with heaviness and depression not all of that is it comes from the enemy but it, we default like it isn't the enemy and what's interesting is the lens by which they live by is they defaulted that it was the spiritual realm they always defaulted there because they they were aware of this they, they were just living in a in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a season of the church that was brand new out of an old covenant when the Spirit was dumped and everything was... We've gotten used to that, I think. Or something. So this lens that he sees is we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but we, we wrestle against, this, against the demonic, the, the strategy of a ruler and he's called here in verse 2 of chapter 2 the prince of this air we're going to talk about why they call him that okay we're going to talk about why we say satan is the ruler of the air why do we say he's the ruler of the air we're going to look at that but before we look at that and, and again i think we looked at this a, a couple years ago here but it's it's much it's much better now if you were to track this down because this is this is what i end up doing i was like okay wh where did this all begin and I went back to the beginning, uh, which our beginning is Genesis chapter 1, where all things regarding the physical world and humanity began. And the first thing that really, that really was plain to me is that there's all kinds of things going on uh, in the beginning 
that had origin before in the beginning. <laughs> so the in the beginning is not really the beginning. It's the beginning for us, but it's not the beginning for God. And there's all kinds of things that were existent that existed before the beginning that was operating in the beginning. And we can look at several of those. The most obvious for me is in chapter 3, you have Lucifer, which is operating in the garden. And he's not just an angel. He is a fallen angel. He's not there to do good. He's there to do evil. And we know all throughout the scripture that there was war, that, there's, that there was some departure, that there was wickedness found in him. And by the time you come to Genesis, and that's interesting to say, by the time you come to the beginning of mankind, all of that that had transpired in the enemy and left him in, in, in the state that he's in, he, was, he had that state before we came along. And he, he surfaces in the garden and you see confrontation between him and Adam and Eve. Now, I got really interested in that. I thought, wow. In fact, to be honest with you, they're very, stay put. The first thing, the first thing that I, I really, and I, this was out of frustration about a year and a half ago when I was studying all this, I think I was having a bad day. And, I, and you know, I don't know if you ever argue with God. And it's, it's silly. He always wins, you know. But I, I really, I did. I, I, was, I was just, I remember looking up and I was like, yeah, I love you. I'm yours. But man, why did you involve us in this? I mean, could, I, listen, I've got enough drama the way it is. Could you just take, you know, the angels and Lucifer and his, and just go to another galaxy? Seriously, why did you involve him? And the word that I, I got back, or the impression I got back is, I didn't, I didn't include him in this. You did. I'm like, I'm like, touche. <laughs> touche. That we are the ones, Adam and Eve are the ones that, in, that literally invited him and included us in this mess. And you say, how did that happen? Well, let me give you a couple passages. We're just going to look at two um, that really give, give uh, illumination. They give revelation on, on the enemy and, and how did he get involved in the physical world? Why did he go after Adam and Eve? And why is he so concerned with you? The Hebrews author, you should, you should eat the book of Hebrews sometimes. Just, just eat that thing for six months. He comes to this conclusion where he quotes the Psalms and he's like, what is man? Why would anybody be concerned with us? I mean, have you looked in the mirror? I'd try not to. I mean, what's man that you're mindful of him? What's the son of man? What's the big deal? Why is he the center of this whole deal? Why is this war? I mean, what's so big about mankind? We learn a little bit about this in Ezekiel chapter 28. And scholars tell us, and again, now, now look at this, all throughout the Old Testament, okay, and the old, the old covenant, let me say it this way, the old covenant scriptures from Genesis to Malachi, it marked a period in human history when, strangely enough, they were more, even though they were not able to participate in the spiritual realm like you and I are, they were more aware of the spiritual realm, it would seem, than you and I are, especially as Americans. For an entire old covenant time period, the old, the you know, the people of God during that season, that 40,000-year period, they were aware that there was a spiritual battle going on even though they didn't participate in it. They were living here, but they were aware of the battle here. For instance, Ezekiel, and this is later on in the history, but Ezekiel is writing of this. When you come into Ezekiel chapter 28, he's giving this lament. God says, hey, I want you to give a lament for the king of Tyre. I want you to, I want you to weep for this guy. 
And he is a guy. And the lament is, God is bringing judgment on this king, this physical king, because he says things like down in verse 2, you say in your heart, I am a God. And God's like, dude, you're not a God. In fact, you're going to die, and it's going to be terrible. And so all of this in the beginning of of this chapter is a, a, a lament for this physical king that is deceived by the spirits in the spiritual realm, the demonic spirits in the heavenly realms, and he believes that he is a God. He's not. He's physical. So there's this lament over this physical king. By the time you come down to verse 12, and actually verse 11, the word of the Lord comes to Ezekiel again, and God says, I want you to give another lament. And this time, it's not just for the physical king of Tyre, I want you to give a lament for the spiritual ruler over Tyre who is actually playing the physical king of Tyre as a puppet. So you have the physical king of Tyre and and he's being judged because he is allowing this demonic spiritual ruler in Tyre to control him and bring about his desire into the physical realm through this king. I mean, he's just demonic. This king is horrible. And when you go down and look at, scholars tell us from verse 12 all the way down really to the end of the chapter, this, this spiritual ruler that's being described is none other than Lucifer, none other than Satan. He begins by describing him in verse 12 by saying, you were the mo-, this, listen to some of it, we'll break it down as we go down through the verse, but he says, you were the model of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden the garden of God. Now, I looked everywhere that I could find in every resource, and I've got a pretty, Pastor and I have some pretty fancy resources, okay? Some pretty fancy resources. I can't find anywhere from any scholar and anywhere in the scripture that tells us Eden is a spiritual place. Eden is a physical place. And he says, you were the model of perfection, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty, and you were in Eden, the garden of God. You were in the physical Eden. Like, really? Well, we know that he was there with Adam and Eve and tempting, but is that what he's talking about? He says in verse, continuing in verse 13, every precious stone adorned you. All of these are physical. Ruby, topaz, emerald, chrysolite, onyx, jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and beryl. Your settings and mountings were made of gold. Listen to this. On the day you were created, they were prepared for you. It's this interesting picture that, we, that I've never thought of before is that when Satan, the day he's a created being, the day he was created, there was this linkage between, there were things on earth, by the way, the most beautiful things on earth, the most prized things on earth, they were created in honor and and, and in kind of a physical manifestation of this spiritual being, and they were kind of linked together. And you see, you see Lucifer, before he became Satan, was created and had this, he was in the Garden of Eden and the best of the earth was created on the day he was created in in like this linkage. In fact, that linkage is explained in verse 14. He says, you were anointed as a guardian cherub for so I ordained you. Now, ordination is, is, we get our understanding of ordination in our denomination as does most denominations. Um, through the lens of Scripture. Um, anyone can come to your church. I had this when I was uh, a pastor for about two years before they fired me. And we had this guy show up one Sunday. 
and he said, uh, hey, I want to speak in your church. I'm a prophet. I'm a prophet of God. You need to let me speak. And I was like, yeah, I don't think that's happening. He goes, you don't honor a prophet of God? I was like, you're weird, first off. Okay? And I was like, where's your ordination? By God. I was like, you, you, need, to read, you need to read the Bible. What ordination is, is God calls men, okay, God gives men calling, and that calling is recognized and, and, and um, it's recognized and there's a platform given by his body. So, for instance, when I got my call to preach, my pastor came to me, my church recognized that call, and I got a local license and they gave me a position of authority to begin to exercise that call. I did that for two years. I held that local license for two years. Hey, didn't kill anybody. Turned out pretty good. Didn't lose any teens on the retreat. They said, hey, yeah. Let's take him up another level. And so they took me to the district and I got my district license. So they took me from that local church and they unleashed me all over the state. And I operated in that accountability for, what was it, four years, something like that? Four or five years? And then... I was ordained by the church of the Nazarene. So ordination is not just a calling of God. It is a calling of God that is very public and it's recognized by the body. We as a body recognize you are called by God and we give you a place to exercise that calling. And you, anybody can be called by God, but it's a big deal. I mean, it's hard to become ordained in our denomination. It's hard. It takes a long time. It's kind of a big deal. <laughs> no, there's educational, there's moral, there's all these kinds of uh, authorities and accountabilities put in our life. It's a big deal. So what I'm trying to tell you is that when God just says, he just didn't say you were anointed as a garden cherub, a guardian cherub, but you were ordained, which means God pronounced this. It, this wasn't like, you know, secret and quiet somewhere in the back room. That what God was doing through the enemy in this linkage with the earth, he was ordained as a guardian cherub. He was put there. And all of the host of the heavenly realms, you're under the impression, maybe even Adam and Eve themselves, knew about all of this. And he was put there as a guard. You guys remember in chapter 3, after Adam and Eve sinned, they sent them out and they put that other guardian cherub there with the flaming sword. That's what a guardian cherub is. He was placed with very specific and limited authority. He was not all-powerful. Satan has never been all-powerful. He was very limited in who he was. He was, a, he, was, he was placed as a guard. A really powerful butler who got fired. Now Jude tells us, don't slander celestial beings. And we're not. But he was not created with the authority that you and I were created. You say, how do you know that? Let me give you another, another passage. Oh, and he goes on, by the way, let me finish verse 14. I get ahead, ahead of myself, apologize. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. Go to Isaiah chapter 14. And Isaiah also gets in on this. God reveals through Isaiah this, this tragedy. It's the tragedy of Lucifer. This, this key, like, there, there, scholars tell us there are three main archangels or cherub angels that we know of, Michael, Gabriel, and Lucifer. And Lucifer, who had tremendous, tremendous significance in the kingdom, fell. He's talked about here in chapter 14, verse 12. Listen to this. Isaiah laments him. He says, 
How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. And I would love to have some time. Um, Rick Renner, a guy that I, I resource a lot, did a beautiful study on that. You who once laid low the nations. And it doesn't have to do with earthly nations. It has to do with deception in the kingdom. It's really interesting. Verse 13, you said in your heart, okay, this is what led to his downfall. I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly. On the uttermost heights of the sacred mountain, I will ascend above the tops of the clouds, and I will make myself like the Most High. So what was the downfall of Satan? He wanted to be like the Most High. And then verse 15 says, you were brought down to the grave, to the depths of the pit. And then there's more. But the downfall is he wanted, he's described this tremendous, and, and, and by the way, just so you don't forget, I will ascend to heaven, I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And by the way, stars are consistently referred to in the Old Testament as angelic beings. Above all of them, I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the uttermost sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I'll make myself like the Most High. Do you know who he wanted to be like? Us. All of that is a description of mankind. You're like, what? Yeah, did you know that Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven and that we are seated? You didn't know that? Seriously? You, we are seated in Christ in the heavenly realms. That word, I, want, I will make myself like the Most High, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, God says, let's make man in our image and likeness. It's the exact same Hebrew word. Exact same Hebrew word. So what we were created to be, Satan longed to have that. Why did Satan go after Adam and Eve? He was jealous. Seriously, he was jealous. He coveted. He wants what you and I carry. And if you look at this whole, even in the, in the age in which we're entering, excuse me, the end of the age, the season in which we're entering, I believe, with the coming of one called the Antichrist, He's an usurper of the throne. Jesus is once again going to have to come and say, listen, get off my throne. Satan has always wanted his throne. He wanted to be like God, and you and I were created like God. And so Satan went after Adam and Eve and stole what they had. Now, and there's tons of evidence of this. All the way throughout the Old Testament, we were very clear on how Satan was created, the linkage, where he was put, and his job. But when you go all the way throughout the Old Testament, dude, he's running everywhere. I mean, in Job, one of the earliest writings we have, God's having this board meeting. Satan shows up. Well, what's he doing there? He was created and put very specifically with, what's he doing up there? God's like, hey, what are you doing? Where do you come from? Satan's like checking out my turf, the whole world. He wasn't created as ruler of the world. Well, how did he get that? It was Adam's. Give me some sign you're with me. I can't tell. That was Adam's. And God's like, you don't have everybody, not Job. He's like, come on, I'll get him. 
in Zechariah, I believe, it's, he shows up in the judge, like he literally shows up as this accuser, which is who he is, and he's bringing accusation against Joshua, the high priest. He's bringing accusation against him. When you come into the new covenant hour, at the temptation of Jesus, right before the verses we looked at in Luke chapter 4, Satan, Matthew talks about it as well, but Satan takes Jesus up there in Luke's, Luke chapter 4 specifically, verses 4 and 5 and 6. And he shows him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he says, they're mine. All of this I will give you. Because he says, it was given to me and I can give it to whoever I want to. And you're like, who gave him that? Adam gave him that. Adam gave him that. Jesus says, dude, you're not giving me anything. I'm taking it back. Because what had been manifest, and Paul writes of this in Ephesians chapter 6 and in chapter 2, that the ruler of the prince of this era. See, when Jesus came, Paul says he made a public spectacle. He disarmed the powers, the rulers and authority. And he tells his disciples before he ascends, all authority has been given to me. Do you know what it means to have all authority? It literally means to have all authority. There's a lie that the enemy tells our generation. Receive this. There's a lie that the enemy tells our generation. That he like, I hear it in music. You know, Satan's got this pitchfork, you know. He's ruling over hell. No, he's not. Hell is his punishment. He doesn't rule there. That's not, that's not his. He doesn't have like this in the spiritual realm, like this Lord of the Rings land of Mordor. He didn't have that. That's why he's called the prince of this heir. Because he has no kingdom. Dude, he has no kingdom. He has no land. Because all authority has been given to Jesus. You're like, well, where does he rule? He rules in the lives of those who let him. Through sin. You don't have to let him rule. You are seated in Christ. So when Jesus came, he says, listen, we're entering into a new era. We're we're entering into a new age. And what's that age? Yeah, Satan has no more power and authority. He's been defeated. He's beneath you. You don't have to tolerate He's easily identifiable. And he only rules where you let him rule. Period. And I, I carry this with me. When you come, by the time you come into the New Testament, get rid of that. By the time you come into the New Testament, I keep it in the, in the background. I'll give it to you if you want it. But I just list, there's 16, and I think there's more. But this is a starter, and it's the only, I can only fit that many on this deal. But there are 16 definitive demonic types literally terrorizing the people of God. Literally terrorizing. Um, In Proverbs 16, 18, pride is a spirit. It's a spirit. Jealousy, James 3, 16, division, envy, and competition is an urging from a spirit. Now, it's interesting. You say, hold on. Well, competition. Is that always a demonic spirit? No, but it can be. And I've met people that are dominated and they just automatically default 
Well, maybe you're not being dominated by some emotion. Maybe it's an attack and, a, and an oppression that has been granted in your life. Maybe even not by you. Fear. 2 Timothy 1.7, you've not been given the spirit of fear. There's a whole category of spirits that operate in fear. Do we live in a day and age of just overwhelming anxiety? Seriously, anxiety and fear, it's everywhere. You turn on the news, it's pumping fear. Fear. We have peace. Bondage, divination, falsehood, lying. Second Chronicles 18.22. Those are spirits. Let me give you one more really quickly. Open up your Bible and turn. Just We're just going to blow through this. But Joshua chapter 5. There's several of these. You can go to Daniel chapter 10. Uh, all throughout the book of first, books of 1 and 2 Chronicles, 1 and 2 Kings. I mean, all of these battles that are taking place, they're bizarre. They're bizarre because God is coming like in the book of Judges. He gets Gideon. And he's like, listen, we're going to go to war. But hear me, look at this. We're going to go to war physically, but the battle is not yours, the battle's mine. Because you are not equipped to fight the real battle. I wish you'd, I, I just, I do, I, I, I would love for you to just to believe. Amen. I'm telling you, the real battle in your home, the real battle between you and your wife, between you and your kids, you and your neighbor, and the real battle that's going on in the leadership of our country is not physical. I'm so tired of hearing that. We just get the right guy in there. Are you serious? We've been trying to get the right guy in there forever. Seriously, what if it's not the right guy? What if there's... There's, there's a whole different... We, and, we, and we put so much emphasis here. Well, we want to take back our country. Let's get some guns and go to the Capitol. Most of those knuckleheads are from Tennessee, by the way, where I live. <laughs> Yeah, if God could have fixed Adam and Eve here, he would have. But what Adam and Eve were up and what, what, what sidetracked us was not this, it was this. This, the, look, this is so neat, this is hysterical, this is my favorite. Joshua chapter 5, beginning at verse 12, it's the fall of Jericho. This is great. So Joshua's a stud, back in his youth, Moses goes out to the tent of meeting one day, and it says Joshua went with him. And when Moses left the tent, it says Joshua stayed behind. So Moses says, hey, let's go. Joshua's like, I think I'm going to stick around. And he just moved in with God. They were roomies. They played Xbox. They just hung out together. And he grew up with God. It's a true story. He's, he and Caleb were the only ones who came out of that generation as leaders to lead the people of Israel into the promised land. Phenomenal individual. Super confident has a tremendous army. Up through chapter 5, he's conquering battles. Like he's got, a, he's, got a, he's got an army. He's the commander of the army. This is so funny. He's, he's the commander of the army. So as every good general, he walks ahead to scout out where they're going. Verse 13, Now Joshua was near Jericho, and he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua, he just reeks of testosterone, by the way. <laughs> it just reeks of testosterone. Joshua walks up to him and says, are you for us or for our enemies? And the guy responds, neither. And he knows he's a spiritual being. 
And he's like, what do you mean neither? We're the good guys. Maybe you heard about us. We're kind of a big deal. I'm Joshua. You know, favor. People of God coming in, taking over the joint. And listen to what this guy says. Neither. But as commander of the Lord's army, I've now come. Joshua's like, dude, 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 hold on. I'm the commander of the Lord's army. There's warriors and there's warriors. There's battles and there's battles. There's fighting and there's fighting. And this guy goes, I'm the commander of the Lord's army. So you have Israel, the people of God, the favored people of God, led by Joshua, the commander of the Lord's army. And then you have this guy, which scholars tell us is a Christ-like figure who comes, the pre-incarnate, I don't know how all that works. Rob will explain it next Sunday. But he comes, and he's commander of the spiritual Lord's army. Listen to what this guy says. Then Joshua fell down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? And it's hysterical. The commander said, take off your sandals for the place you're standing is holy ground. Now Jericho was tightly shut up because of the Israelites and no one went in, no one came out. Listen to this. Look at verse 2. Then the Lord said to Joshua, I have delivered Jericho into your hands. Dude, the battle's over! Joshua comes up, he's getting ready for a war. Here, typical testosterone-filled man. And the commander of the Lord's army, look, up here, there's this, Joshua, and the commander of the Lord's army comes and says, dude, listen, the battle's already won. Why? Because battles are won here, not here. We see this through Gideon. We see this through Hezekiah. All throughout the Old Testament, God's like, listen, the battle's the Lord's. Trust in the Lord. He's the strong tower. This is the message. It did not change in the New Testament. We don't fight here. We fight here. Our adversary's not here. Our adversary's here. Your wife is not the problem. Your wife is not the problem. Your husband is not the problem. Your kids, your neighbor, man. Come on. The problem's here, not here. That's their lens. I'm telling you, we fight here, and the enemy just laughs at us. The battle's here. In fact, he ends up telling Joshua, don't screw this up. Go into the city, start walking. Don't say anything. Don't say one thing to him. We've already won. And I usually give an illustration out of Daniel chapter 10 where Gabriel comes to Daniel and he's getting ready to leave. And he tells Daniel the people are getting ready to go back into, the, into their homeland after 70 years. Daniel's been poking around in Jeremiah the prophet. And Gabriel's like, oh, I just come from Persia. Man, it's been crazy. Dad, Michael came and helped me out. Man, it's nuts. Daniel's like, what? What are you doing in Persia? Oh, they were coming along after the Babylonians. And you go down to the, the bottom of chapter 10. He says, by the way, after the Persians are gone, the Greek people are going to come. Like, dude, God is way in advance. We're just trailing behind. You're all like, dude, it's, it's revelatory. It's crazy. You're like, what's the New Testament? What's, what's Ephesus? What, what, what's, what's the big... Jesus comes and says, listen, it's time for you to be in the battle. But you have to be equipped. You have, we've entered into a whole new season, is what he says in Luke chapter 4. I know, we're almost done. I see you. Everybody's like, man, this guy goes on forever. There's a whole new season we're entering into. Ephesians chapter 1. 
All right, that was the introduction, so we're going to hurry. No, I'm kidding. We're going to look at four verses. We've already looked at the fifth one. Four, five times in the letter that Paul writes to Ephesus, he mentions this place called the heavenly realms, which is plural. There is more than one heaven. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the... That's plural. That's why we have an S on the end of it. There's only one earth. That's where man is. A little bonus material for you. I've been trying to email and text and tweet Elon Musk, but he doesn't get back to me. I love his space program thing. Dude, he's so smart. We're never going to go to Mars. Why? Because Jesus is coming back to earth. You weren't impressed. My point is, my point is, we're stuck here. This is the earth. This is where we, this is where we are. This is where we're We're not going to live on the moon. Definitely not going to live on Mars. It'd be cool, but that's not where we're on earth. God is in heaven, which is the third heaven. It's called the highest heaven most of the time in scriptures. All throughout the New Testament, the third heaven, the first heaven is mentioned. Jesus talks about when he's teaching in the Beatitudes, the birds of the sky, that word sky is heaven. The clouds in the heaven, the stars in the heavens. That's the physical place that's above the earth that we can see. Physical heavens, third heavens where God reigns. You're like, what's the second heaven? Now, I don't, I'm not great with math. I would assume, I'd assume, still working on it, but this heavenly realms place that he's talking about, Satan is not allowed here. He's not physical, so he's here. And he's in this place that Paul calls the heavenly realms where that's our, where our adversary is and that's where we're equipped, where we are equipped. For example, five times he mentions this. Over and over throughout the, to, the, to the church in Ephesus throughout this letter, he talks about, hey, you've been included into this fight and God has not put you in a fight that you can't overcome. In fact, you're more than an overcomer. You're more than a conqueror. And where you are equipped is not physical, you are equipped spiritual. When we get saved, we don't get smarter. I hoped for that. It's not like I get saved and all of a sudden I get six packs. I, trust me. Okay? So where we are equipped, where we are transformed, is the inner man. That's what he talks about. Listen to chapter 1, verse 3. It's the first place where he mentions heavenly realms. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. You know what's so neat? The word every spiritual blessing, you're like, hold on. I've, look at me. We live here. We're equipped here. We have access here. We're seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. We can walk boldly into this throne room. We live here. We're going to talk about this more just in two seconds. We're equipped here with every spiritual blessing. You're like, what does it mean by every spiritual blessing? That word, which is the Greek word pas, can be translated all or every. You're going to love this. You're going to love this, Pastor. It's all and every. How do they relate? My, my wife uses both of these adjectives frequently. And most of the time, it's in relationship with our daughter. So she'll come into my daughter's room 45 minutes before dinner, and her room is always a nightmare. Tornado went through it. It's just a nightmare. So she'll come in and say, I want pos. I want all of this cleaned up. And then she'll leave, and then unlike your perfect children, she'll come back in 30 minutes, and nothing changed. She'll, she'll switch adjectives. 
And she doesn't say, I want all this cleaned up. She'll say, I want every single thing in this room. She, it's a gift the way she says it. It's like profound. I want, it's the fear of the Lord. It's a gift. She says, I want every single thing in this room picked up. So what's every and all? How are they related? Every is the same thing as all. It's just highlighting the every bit of the all. See, it's one thing to say you have all the blessings. You do. You have every single one of them. There is not one thing more that God could give you. Think about that. You mean, I wonder if that means the reason I don't overcome in my life is not because of Him, but because of me. You have everything. We have everything we need. Well, we want God to do a new... Dude, God can't do any more than He's already done. Just run with that. He can't do any more than He's already done. He's accomplished everything in Christ. Said it's all yours. Praise be to the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ who's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every one of the blessings. Listen to what he says next. He uses the second reference to heavenly realms beginning down in verse 18. Listen to this. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Now why would he say the eyes of your heart? Okay, your eyes, your, your, your heart does not have eyes. Your head has eyes. Your heart does not have eyes. Well, why would he say that? Because he wants you to learn to not see here, but to see here. Jesus says this all the time. He says, I've come that the blind could see and that those who see would become blind. And the Pharisees make fun of him. Oh, I guess we're blind. Jesus is like, yup. Dude, they could see, but they couldn't see. Why? Because the problem with the Pharisees wasn't physical, it was spiritual. You see this over, this illustration over and over and over and over. This is never the big deal. This is always the big deal. He says, I pray. Paul said, this is what Paul's writing. He's writing, he said, listen, this is my consistent prayer for you, that you would grow in the understanding of who you are. I have this dream that we are going to wake up and embrace who we really are. And Satan is scared to death that you'll do that. He is absolutely terrified that what was going on in Jesus will start going on in you. Terrified of you. He's terrified of you. Terrified of you. Paul says, I pray, here's what I pray for you, that, the eye, that you would spiritually see the eyes of your heart would be enlightened in order that what? You may know the hope to which he's called you. This glorious riches, inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. We have power? Well, he describes it. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him in his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above every rule and authority, power and dominion, every title that can not only be given in this age, but also in the age to come. Dude, every title. There's no title that will ever be given that is, that is going to be above Jesus. And he says in verse 6 of chapter 2, just in a few more verses, and God raised us up with Christ and seated him where he was in the heavenly realms. Get this, there is no title that has ever been given, that is now or ever will be given, that will have authority and power over you, over what you carry. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in our bodies. I just don't think we believe it. Seriously, I just don't think we believe it. Three times 
in like 30 verses. Paul says, you have every resource. There's no resource you don't have. I'm praying that your eyes would be opened. That you could see who you really are. And who are you? Verse chapter 2, verse 6. Who are, I'm the one who's seated at the right hand of the Father. And the enemy is under my feet. He's a guard dog. He's a, he can do, when he comes to me and tempts me, I'm like, dude, you're a butler that got fired. Beelzebub is another one of his names. Lord of the flies. Shoe fly, don't bother me. In the name of Jesus. That's what we do. We resist him and he flees in terror. Why? He's scared to death of those who know who they are. Because what was going on in Jesus is going on in us. I anticipated screaming and yelling and cartwheels from old ladies. Here's the last thing. Last statement. By the time you come to chapter 3, verse 10, he mentions the fourth time. And I I was going to go through and read this, but I won't. He spends all of the first three chapters just overloading us with who we are in him. And then he says this in verse 10 of chapter 3. Here's God's intent with all of this. Here's his purpose. Here's his reasoning. His intent was that now, now, right now, through the church. Listen, his intent was that right now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God, the full plan what God's been up to, his thinking behind the scenes, all of that would be made known, not to us, but to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Hold on. You're telling me that God's plan from the beginning and everything that he's just described in establishing mankind and seated him in relationship as sons and daughters of God, created in his image and likeness. Angels weren't created in the image of God. We were. And now, it was now, God's intent was it now through the church, all of this plan was to be revealed to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms? What does it mean by that? God is revealing through the church now to the demonic realm, you are not in charge anymore. You can't have my city. You can't have my relationships. You can't have my kids. And I pray with that kind of authority. You can't have my health. You can't have my kids, man. You can't get on my property. Let me give you an example. Dude, that's ridiculous. Why did he just smash the enemy? He will. Through us. Jesus is going to come back with his bride. It's phenomenal. Last year, I was at this church, uh, excuse me, I'm telling this illustration at Lake Jackson, Texas, beginning of January. About a year and a half ago, you may have gotten one of these messages as well. I can't remember. I think you did. You can correct me if I'm wrong. People were um, getting on Facebook. And it was demonically inspired because there was fear attached with it. One of the easy ways to to, to distinguish the enemy's voice from every other voice. It comes with fear, intimidation, stress, anxiety. He always operates on what has been and what will be. Jesus is right here in the present. So you, you're going to come to recognize his voice. He's a liar. It was demonically inspired. There were people that were grabbing my Facebook. Not my Facebook. But they were getting on my Facebook, taking a picture of my profile and my background 
and then they would friend all of my friends to follow what they put as Jeremiah Bullock Ministries, like period INC. And so they were, they were copying my page. And then they were mailing people all over the country, messaging people, pastors, saying, beloved pastor, beloved brother, hey, I've been praying for you, I love you. And they get back, thanks, Jeremiah. You're talking kind of weird. Oh, I want to let you know about this new product got coming out. And they were soliciting churches for money. Did I tell you? But did you that happen? Oh, it's crazy. Every week, I'd report it, they'd start up another one. And I had all these pastors calling me and say, hey, we, we, you know, it was horrible. I kid you not. One morning I woke up and it was clear as a bell. The Lord was like, why are you putting up with this? I'm like, me? You're, you're the strong tower. Hello? Did I fall out the window? I mean, I don't think I'm living in sin. And literally the Lord was like, don't put up with that. What do you mean don't put up with that? Like I have authority over that happening. And I did. I declared it. I was like, here's it really quickly. I need, let me insert this. We're going to come back. Apple uh, company, the company Apple, phones, you know, watches, they have two different departments. They have what we call the quality control department where everything they put out, there's a certain quality that they're going to, you know, ensure and warranty and it's got to be, okay, quality control. And then on the back of their property, surrounded by bulletproof glass, fire extinguishers, they have the product development area where there's loss of limbs, blindness, burns. They're experimenting with what they have. I, I've lived here most of my life. I'm now living here. You say, what do you mean? The same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in my body. I wonder, I wonder what that looks like being released in the physical realm. I'm biblical. I'm biblical. Come on, I'm not just making stuff up. But I wonder how this applies. And I did. I heard the Lord. And it, it literally led me on how to pray. And I said, Satan, I don't give you permission to mess with my ministry Facebook page. It belongs to Jesus. There's no sin in my ministry. There's no sin. You can't do this if you have sin. Yeah. If you're flirting around with, you know, lying to the government, stealing, operating in porn, robbing banks, don't do that. Don't do that. But I was like, there's nothing going on in sin in this ministry. And you are not allowed to touch it in the name of Jesus. I'm not kidding you. There was not, there's not been one attack. And I've been talking about it every week. Go ahead. I don't say go ahead and try. You're not allowed to try. Dude, it belongs to Jesus. Why? You're like, that works? That was the language. I went to my wife. She's like, that works? I guess. She's we should do that from some other places. I'm like, let's experiment. Yeah, you can't have my kids. You can't come in my house. You can't have my neighbor. He's my neighbor. He's not yours. You can't have my Walmart. Seriously, what if every day we walked in? This is, for me, this is not just fairy tale. What if we just walked in every day and we walked up to that map, map and said, in the name of Jesus, you live here. Yes. Yes. You live here and you have authority and you have the right. If you could just walk up to that map. Here's the deal. I don't think you can start with the map. You have to start in your home. Yes. Yeah. 
Christopher Columbus first started swimming across his pool before he did the ocean, when he was like five. Seriously, that's what Paul tells the church in Corinth. You're trying to chuck down a steak because it's all cool, and you can't even keep down milk. So what would happen, what if if we just ended like this? Where's uh, Zach? I love Zach. I said I was going to ask you, but I think I'm going to ask Zach. I'll get you tomorrow. I like Zach. I really like Zach. Hey, I, I come expecting. You wouldn't, we've got a, a Facebook page. I, I want you to follow it. Not just like it, but follow it. Jeremiah Bullock Ministries. I want you to go and those of you online, follow our YouTube page. That dude's free. I don't charge. I put updates every week where I've been. You wouldn't believe the stuff that's been happening, which is probably the problem. What God is doing, it's incredible. I'm in product development. We're seeing, we're seeing people not only physically healed, but inwardly healed. I had a lady. I won't give you any details. I won't tell you where she's from. No embellishment. She's 88 years old. She was inwardly healed. She sat down with me and told me in tears and rejoicing. She got married at a very young age, back when they got married at a very young age. Her husband went off to World War II. And after he left, her neighbor came over and raped her. And she told me something held on to me. And for the first time in my life, I became tremendously promiscuous. Had multiple affairs on my husband while he was gone. She was also in torment. I was in fear. So my husband came back. We started going to church. I got saved. I repented, was forgiven. And she says, I've lived under that bondage for 70 years. I hear condemnation. She was talking about all the stuff she hears, the temptation she has, the dreams that she has. Was she saved? Absolutely she's saved. She hasn't been transformed. Romans 1-8 through is all about being saved and sanctified. He builds that up to chapter 12 where he says you have to be transformed by the way you think. In the church of the Nazarene, we believe in crisis points. Entire, initial sanctification, entire sanctification, and then ultimate sanctification. It's where you croak. And from entire sanctification until ultimate sanctification is this area that Wesley said, growing in grace. And what's growing in grace? Where you begin to assert your authority and who you are in Christ, and you overcome strongholds of the mind. And that girl was set free. And it it frustrated me because she lived for 70 plus years in something that she didn't have to live in. Last week, I was in Carthage, Missouri. A 74-year-old man showed up to the men's breakfast at 2 o'clock. He couldn't come to the services because at night he can't see and he can't drive. I don't even know if his wife was still alive. But he showed up at the men's breakfast. He comes up to me, short guy, white hair. And he said, I was watching online. I want you to know that I was set free in my living room yesterday. He didn't tell me what it was. But that little 70-year-old guy was bouncing up and down. I'm like, don't break a hip. 
we'll heal that sucker, but don't do it. And there's, there's those of you watching online, this is, this is you. This is for you. And there's those of you who are here. I believe we can, we can speak life over our grandkids and over our spouses and over our church, over our finances. I just believe that. It's called provision. God does not send Joseph and Mary to Egypt without providing three wise men. He just doesn't do that. So let's just listen. Let's just listen to the Holy Spirit tonight. Let's just pause. I think there's one side of what we're doing where you're going to go home and go, I need to read some of this. That's a little bit. And, and rewatch this. It's recorded. Get on my Facebook page. Get on my, get on my uh, YouTube channel. We got it there. You're gonna, and I break it down in 10 minutes of truth and all of that. We just break it down in 10 minutes segments. I teach on it. And you, I'll walk you right through it. It'd be great. So there's that side of it. But this isn't just some intellectual exercise where we have more knowledge and a great Bible study and that's super cool. I'm not interested in that. I'm no longer in the name of Jesus. I'm no longer interested in preaching things that I cannot demonstrate. Because we're living in a day where the world's going to look at you and say, put up or shut up. And I don't blame them. Because we've been running our mouth for a long time and not putting out. You with me? Come on. Why can't we expect for more? And I'm talking to someone. You guys, I, I watch you. I keep tabs on this guy. I hear what he's singing about. Some new songs that maybe weren't sung here maybe four or five years ago. Why? Well, you're singing about things that are happening. And so maybe you do. Maybe you need to get out of your seat. And maybe it's been a long time. And I know what you're thinking. I'm looking at some of you thinking, if you come down here and kneel, you ain't getting up. We'll help you. There's other places you can sit, but let's, let's cry out tonight. Let's, let's listen. And then uh, Zach's just going to kind of... Let, let's, let's, uh, let's make this atmosphere more conducive. Can we? For response? That means maybe dim the lights. Let's put it in a worship setting. And in a minute, Pastor Rod's going to come and he's going to close us. But Father, guide us in these moments. Maybe we need to respond. Maybe we just need to stand up where we're at. Maybe there's some here that say, hey, my thought life has been a mess. I've got, I've got kids and grandkids that are living lives that just break my heart. And I feel powerless. Father, we're, we're not against prayer chains. We're not in church. We're not against prayer meetings where we... We're not against having prodigal walls where we write down their names. We're not against any of that. But I'm going to stand in the gap in intercession. And I'm going to intervene. That's what intercession is. I'm going to intervene in the midst of that situation. 
Why? Because I know who I am. I'm not arrogant. I just believe what the scriptures say about me. I believe what you say about me, Jesus. I believe you come to heal the sick. I believe that the I believe that you come to, to, to heal the inside of our hearts and we could be entirely sanctified. I believe that. I believe that the prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective. I believe that I've not been given a spirit of fear, but boldness. I've been given clarity of mind. That you've given me spiritual eyes to see in the spiritual world. You want to guide me on how I'm supposed to pray. So tonight, I'm praying over my daughter, Elena. I'm praying over my son, Curtis. I'm praying over my wife, Corinda, and our relationship. I'm praying over our home. There are no vulnerabilities in my life. There's no vulnerabilities. I'm seated in you, Jesus. I don't believe the lies of the enemy. I don't have any, I don't have any spiritual vulnerabilities. I don't buy into the lie. I'm not going to operate in fear. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. In the name of Jesus, if you're here tonight and He's speaking to you, respond somehow. We call that activating. I don't know what if that means anything to you. Everybody's got different terminology. But we call that responding. Maybe you and your wife need to come down and pray. Maybe you and your husband need to stand. Just grasp hands and say, we're going to stand in the gap. We're going to stand in the gap with our kids and our grandkids. We're going to intercede for our city. I mean, wouldn't it be something if we could just witness all the theories that we believe in? Pastor Rod's going to come and I want to encourage you to be here. I'm going to be responsible with your time this week, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. If you can't make it, I get it. Tune in online. And those of you who are tuning on online, spread the word. Paste it on your Facebook pages. Put it on your Instagrams. You senior adults, put it out on your TikToks. Get the word out there. We carry the solution for what's going on in our country. His name is the Holy Spirit. Like you literally carry that. Jesus told his disciples, when you go into a house, let my peace rest on that house. And if there's a man of peace there, it's great. If not, let my peace return to you. You're like, really? Like we carry that? Yes. You carry. You carry the Holy Spirit, the tangible presence of the Holy Spirit. And you can give it away. So let's just listen tonight. Let's, let's just spend a few minutes. We're not going to be in a rush. We're not going to be here all night, but maybe five minutes or so. And let's just listen. Father, what's your dream for this evening? I want to slow down. I want to listen. We want you to take the truth of your word and write it on the fleshly tablets of our heart. That is so significant. That's such a significant prophecy. Jeremiah was seeing the days where all the spiritual activity that he was hearing as a prophet and seeing in the spiritual realm, one day that spiritual activity was going to physically manifest in the life of your children. God's going to take the truth 
of your word and he's going to write it on the fleshly tablet. We're going to physically display what Jeremiah was seeing in the spiritual world. I receive that tonight in the name of Jesus. I want to be the physical display of who you are in the spiritual realm. The physical display of joy. The physical display of peace. I'm tired of singing about it. I want to demonstrate it. So as we gather here tonight toward the end and pray, would you just lead us and guide us and direct us? In the name of Jesus, we pray. Thank you.